Good morning. Our next case is Shaw Corp versus Varun Brands uh, and Victor Abaika. And we will hear from the appellant. May it please the court, Chief Justice and Associate Justices. My name is Carol Austin of the law firm of Miller Austin Law, and I represent the plaintiff appellant D.B. Shawcorp. I would like to reserve five minutes for rebuttal this morning. The Court of Appeals erred in vacating the trial court's order, which granted summary judgment in favor of the plaintiff. In vacating the trial court's order, the Court of Appeals improperly supplanted the discretion of the trial court with its own incorrect interpretation of the lo local relevant rules of Mecklenburg County Superior Court and largely ignored the fact that the defendants made a mockery of the discovery practice as codified in our rules of civil procedure. To demonstrate the errors set forth by the Court of Appeals, I'd like to take a few moments to set forth a timeline of events that led up to the summary judgment hearing that was held in Mecklenburg County Superior Court on May 24, 2021. The complaint was filed on October 17, 2019, which was verified by the plaintiff's president and included a claim for breach of contract. The primary basis of the claim was the defendant's breach of a commercial lease agreement for failure to pay the monthly rent and real property taxes. The complaint also sought to enforce a personal guarantee signed by the defendant, Victor Obaca. The lease agreement was attached to the complaint as an exhibit. Now, historically, the leased property was used as a gas station and a convenience store, and that was the same use that was going to be implemented by the defendant. A few key terms of the, of the lease included there was a five-year term, which was set to commence on April 1st, 2018, and to expire on March 31st, 2023. The property was expressly leased as is. There was a merger provision which provided that the lease contains a complete expression of the agreement between the parties and that there are no representations, promises, or inducements except those that were included in the agreement. The complaint also included a calculation of damages owed to the plaintiff as a result of the defendant's breach of the lease. On June 1, 2020, there was an unverified answer filed on behalf of the defendants, which included affirmative defenses and a counterclaim for fraudulent inducement. The defendant's answer is important given that it admitted that the lease attached to the complaint was a true and exact copy of the lease agreement between the parties. The answer further admitted that the defendants vacated the property as early as October 2019 and further had not paid the sums that were due to the plaintiff as set forth in the complaint. On September 16th, 2020, my office issued its first set of interrogatories and requests for production of documents to the defendants. On November 18th, 2020, the defendants by and through counsel served responses to these discovery requests, which largely included objections. Upon receiving the discovery responses, my law partner, Jerry Miller, reached out to the defendant's then counsel, Sean Copeland, about the inadequate responses. 
We were assured via email correspondence from Mr. Copeland both on November 30th, 2020 and December 7th, 2020 that we would have supplemental documents produced within the week. No documents were ever produced by the defendants. Instead of producing documents as promised, on January 5th, 2021, Defendant's Counsel filed a motion to withdraw, which was consented to by the defendants. Now, this is a, an important fact, and it's a fact that was absent from Judge Jackson's opinion as well as the defendant's brief. Notably, defendants' consent to the withdrawal indicated that they understood the withdrawal would not result in any delays or continuance of the trial or any other settings in the case. The withdrawal was granted by the trial court on February 3rd, 2021. Following the withdrawal again, the defendants never produced any documents. On April 29th, 2021, we filed a motion for summary judgment, which was timely filed on behalf of the plaintiff and timely served on the defendants. The day of the hearing, Mr. Obaka was late and he appeared pro se. No one appeared on behalf of the defendant Vroom Brands. During the course of the hearing, Mr. Obaka requested the court to continue, continue the matter to a later date, claiming that the motion for summary judgment and affidavit in support thereof were not timely and that he needed additional time to retain counsel. The transcript of the proceedings is included within this court's record on appeal, and it's insightful inasmuch as it reveals a 22-page dialogue between the defendant, Mr. Obaka, and the Honorable Judge Karen Edie Williams. Judge Karen Edie Williams specifically cites in the transcript as to her concerns in the futility and fairness in granting a continuance request when over six months had gone by since the defendant's discovery responses were due, no resp responsive documents had been produced, and there had been absolutely no activity by the defendants in the case. The transcript makes clear that the court doubted the veracity of the statements being made by Mr. Obaka in support of his continuance request, and which was ultimately what led to the denial of that request. There's two standards of review applicable to this case. The first is an abuse of discretion standard, which applies in three instances that are relevant to this case. Number one is the trial court's decision to grant or deny a motion to continue. Number two, the timing of submission of affidavits supporting or opposing summary judgment. And number three, whether to permit oral testimony at a summary judgment hearing. An abuse of discretion occurs only where the trial court's ruling is manifestly unsupported by reason or is so arbitrary that it could not have been the result of a reasoned decision. The second standard of, re of review that applies here is the review of a trial court's order to grant or deny a summary judgment order. Can I just interrupt you for a moment when we're talking standards of review? I, I understood are. the concurrence to argue with respect to the presentation of the oral testimony at the hearing. I think the concurrence, the Court of Appeals is arguing, it wasn't clear the trial court understood it had that discretion. And our case law says if a court would have discretion to make some ruling but doesn't understand that it has that, that's per se an, an error of law, so per se abuse of discretion. So what, do you disagree with that assertion that it's not clear the trial court understood what authority it had to allow that testimony at the hearing? 
I do, Your Honor. And I believe, Your Honor, you're referring to the, the State versus Lane case that was cited by Judge Dillon and his concurrence. I think in this particular case, <clears throat> pardon me, the trial judge um, was not faced with a situation where she, in error, refused to exercise her discretion, feeling as though she had no discretion. She was faced with the circumstance of the only thing that had been put in the file by the defendants was an unverified answer. And so in looking at the file and hearing the arguments from Mr. Abaka and from myself, of course, she understood that um, there needed to be something in the file, such as, as she said, in the form of an affidavit. Um, and in that case, there wasn't. There was absolutely nothing in the file other than the unverified answer. And permitting Mr. Obaka's testimony would have been contrary to law. And I believe that the trial court understood that. Okay, help me understand. Why would it be contrary to law to allow him to testify at this hearing? Well, Rule 43, which is the rule that we're referring to, does permit oral testimony in the context of a motion for summary judgment. However, that is to be permitted only in certain circumstances. And the case law that discusses this points of law, this point of law, discusses the fact that if oral testimony is to be permitted, it needs to be offered in a supplementary capacity. It needs to be offered to provide a small link to other evidence that's been produced in this case. And in this case, the trial court saw that there was no other evidence. There was absolutely nothing else to be, to be uh, looked at other than Mr. Obaka's offered testimony, which was intended to make out his entire case. And the trial court understood that that is contrary to law, and her decision not to permit the testimony was correct. Counsel, but before you go too much further, I, I want to make sure I understand. What, what is the scope of the appeal um, in, in this case? You enter notice of appeal based on Judge Tyson's dissent. Uh, how far do you think your appeal goes? Uh, in terms of the issues that we're presenting the, the to the court? Presented, yes. Well, so we are certainly keeping it within the scope of Judge Tyson's dissent, um, which discusses whether or not the summary judgment uh, order was correct, and then moving towards the, uh, the end of Judge Tyson's dissent, he discusses the propriety of the trial court's decision in denying the motion to continue. And so I think um, discussing uh, the trial court's decision not to grant the continuance as well as the propriety of the summary judgment is certainly within the scope of that dissent. So in what is your support to say for saying that allowing testimony other than that supplementing a previously filed affidavit, that allowing that testimony is contrary to law? Well, we have a couple of cases, Your Honor, that are cited in the brief. There, the, the Chantos case, which is actually cited by both the, the plaintiff appellant and defendant appellee for different reasons, that is a case that specifically discusses that point. Um, the other case, which is the Kessing versus National Mortgage Corporation case, that is another case that uh, discussed 
the point of law that uh, Rule 43E, while it does permit oral testimony in the context of a summary judgment hearing, it needs to be offered in a supplementary capacity. Uh, the other uh, treatise that was cited in our brief was Moore's Federal Practice, and we were citing to the most recent version of that, which goes into great detail as to why oral testimony should only be permitted in, in certain circumstances, which, as I've indicated, is in a supplementary capacity. Uh, the, the dangers of allowing oral testimony otherwise are <coughs> that the trial court runs the risk of making credibility determinations in the context of a motion for summary judgment, which is improper, and also the danger that we're going to turn a motion for summary judgment into a de facto or preliminary trial, which would essentially... I think your friend is going to argue that not going to disagree with the, the, what you're saying right now, but say, in fact, this is what was going on in Chantos, was the court saying those are all reasons why a trial court in its discretion may say, I'm not going to allow you, the testimony you're giving, you know, open this up too much, it's going to be a mini trial, you know, whatever the reasons. But that it appears what happened in here is that the trial court actually didn't understand that cases like Chantos said that and saying, I, I'm not allowed to let you hear. And what I think, this was video, uh, proceeding, right, and say, I'm not allowed you to just start testifying, essentially, for me to put you under oath and do that. And if, if that was what the court thought, that's, that's per se abuse of discretion. That would not be a, that would be a misapprehension of the law. So I think what the court's trying to do here is figure out what was, what was going on. Did the court understand it had discretion and that's what it was saying, or was it just saying, I, I'm not allowed to do this? Right, Your Honor. <clears throat> it's our position that the judge understood that she had discretion, but in this particular case, she could not permit the testimony because it was not being intended at, in a supplementary capacity. I think the judge very well understood that um, the unverified answer in the file, along with the fact that there had been absolutely no discovery <coughs> or other evidence produced in the case, um, warranted denying Mr. Obaka's tes uh, offered testimony. Has it been uh, the practice that you're aware of in Mecklenburg County or other places to allow uh, testimony when there is uh, this video uh, um, hearing? Well, I, I can't speak to um, all judges, certainly, but um, I, I understand that, you know, the judges in Mecklenburg County, they very well understand that oral testimony can be permitted in the context of a summary judgment hearing, and it's, it's really fact-specific <coughs> fact as to whether or not it's appropriate. I guess what I'm asking is, is it appropriate to uh, use a virtual hearing as a place to take live testimony? Your Honor, I think in that, in, to answer your question, I think it can be in certain circumstances. Um, and those certain circumstances are, um, you know, when it's being offered specifically to provide a small link to other evidence that's been presented in the case. And in this case, that didn't exist. Um, it, uh, uh, sorry, go ahead. Well, I just wanted to ask about um, Judge Dillon's concurring opinion where he says, what, what he finds indicative that the trial court 
believed that she did not have the discretion to take oral testimony is when she said, when she cut off the plaintiff and said, I can't accept your statements because it's testimonial. I can't accept that in the context of a summary judgment hearing. It has to be provided by way of an affidavit. So how does that indicate that she exercised her discretion to decide not to hear oral a testimony as opposed to believing that she could not, that it has to be by affidavit and she could, she didn't have the ability to hear oral testimony. Sure. Well, I, I think looking at the transcript as a whole, um, there's a great bit of dialogue between the trial court and Mr. Obaka and myself in terms of the events that led up to the motion for summary judgment hearing, the defendant's <clears throat> failure to produce any other evidence. And so I think by the time we get to the point where the judge is, is specifically stating that she needs an affidavit, she, under, uh, she understood the context in which Mr. Obaka was offering his testimony. So we've discussed the uh, different uh, standards of review that are applicable in this case, but importantly, we also have to discuss that pursuant to Rule 61, no error or defect in any ruling or order by the trial court is grounds for vacating, modifying, or otherwise disturbing a judgment or, or order unless refusal to take such act, action amounts to the denial of a substantial right. In other words, the burden is on the appellant to show not only error, but to show prejudicial error that there would have been a, a different result would have ensued had the error not occurred. Now we've talked a little bit about Judge Dillon's concurrence. And, and actually in reading Judge Dillon's concurrence, he had a great deal in common with Judge Tyson's dissent. Namely, um, his opinion provides that plaintiff's complaint was verified and the allegations contained therein were sufficient to establish plaintiff's claim. Even if plaintiff's affidavit in support of the summary judgment was not timely, defendant was not prejudiced by the trial court's consideration of said affidavit. Judge Dillon also agreed with Judge Tyson that the defendants failed to meet their burden to produce evidence, showing how much of any plaintiff's damages for defendants' breach should be reduced by plaintiff's alleged failure to mitigate, which was an affirmative defense put forth by the defendants. <clears throat> Now, we've already discussed the, the, our position on the trial court's correct ruling that it could not permit Mr. Obaka's testimony in the context of uh, this particular summary judgment hearing. Um, but there was another aspect of Judge Dillon's concurrence where he concluded that it was improper for the trial court to enter summary judgment on defendants' counterclaims. But Judge Dillon's reasoning is flawed in at least two respects. First, it's long been held that specific facts supporting or opposing summary judgment may only be, excuse me. We've actually already discussed that for first point. So let me move on to my second point, which is a point that Judge Tyson pointed out in his opinion which is a trial court may properly grant summary judgment on all claims, even when one of the parties has only moved for partial summary judgment. 
Now, Rule 56 does not require that a party move for summary judgment in order to be entitled to it. According to the North Carolina Court of Appeals 2015 opinion in the case of Buckner versus Tiger Swan, even if the parties had only moved for partial summary judgment, it's not error for the trial court to grant summary judgment on all claims where both parties are given the opportunity to submit evidence on all claims before the trial court. Now, contrary to defendant's argument, the defendants failed to produce any evidence to support their defenses or counterclaim despite having more than ample opportunity to do so. And there was no error in granting summary judgment as to defendant's defenses and counterclaims. And as Judge Dillon noted himself, the defendant's fraud claim also provided a defense to plaintiff's breach of contract claim. Given this fact, the defendants should have submitted evidence to support their fraud claim without regard to whether a motion for summary judgment on the counterclaim was noticed. But another problem with Judge Dillon's finding of prejudice in this particular case, prejudicial as opposed to harmless error occurs only when a different result would have likely ensued had the error not occurred. In this case, there was no prejudicial error. The result would have been the same even if Mr. Obaka had been permitted to testify in regards to the fraud claim because the defendants did not and in some respects could not provide any evidence to support various elements of fraud. As we set forth in our briefs, the defendants alleged in their unverified answer and counterclaim that they were fraudulently induced to enter into the lease and guarantee by these three alleged pre-contract representations made by the plaintiff's secretary, Mr. Shaw, to the defendant, Mr. Obaka. What the defendants failed to acknowledge in this case is that summary judgment may be and is granted in cases like this one where the claimant fails to produce evidence of their own reasonable reliance or the defendant's scienter. The standard applied when considering a motion for summary judgment is no different in fraud cases. If a defendant shows through discovery that the claimant cannot produce evidence to support even one element of their fraud claim, the burden shifts to the claimant to come forward with evidence demonstrating that there is a genuine issue for trial, which didn't occur in this particular case. In reality, the very nature of Mr. Shaw's alleged pre-contract misrepresentations as well as the express terms of the lease, which we've discussed earlier, had the as-is provision, included the statement that no inducements, representations, or promises were included in the agreement except that were actually in the agreement itself. That all demonstrates that the defendants could not have carried their burden of proof as to any of these alleged representations. Excuse me, Counselor, a point of clarification, and I'm certain this is not regarding whether there had been evidence presented. You say that the lease did not include what I would consider a merger clause, but isn't fraud an exception to the parole evidence rule in the merger clause situation? Again, notwithstanding what evidence was presented just on that legal matter. 
Sure, Your Honor. Admittedly, um, if, if one can plead and prove a fraudulent inducement claim, then certainly that would be an exception to the parole evidence rule. Um, but in this particular case, that didn't happen. Uh, and I understand your argument. And so uh, uh, turning that directly to the merger clause or the, um, the, the statement in the lease, I don't think you called it a merger clause, that this was the entire agreement, then if this, that would not apply to fraud. Is that at least, is that your, do you agree that that's the legal rule and that's how the parole evidence rule is, affects these kinds of contracts? Not necessarily. And would you elaborate, please? Yes, Your Honor. Uh, I think this is really a fact-specific inquiry um, looking at the parties themselves. Um, there are cases, a long line of cases, that discuss the relative sophistication of the parties, um, specifically the RDNJ versus Laurelie case. Um, that included a contract where a purchaser entered into an agreement to purchase a mobile home park, and there were later problems with the septic system, and the purchaser sued the seller for fraud. In that particular case, the court looked at the sophisticated nature of the parties. The court also looked at the fact that there was an as-is clause included in the agreement, which there is one here, as well as the fact that there was a merger provision in that particular case. And com combining all of those circumstances together, the court granted summary judgment on the purchaser's fraud claims because there was a complete failure to prove, prove scienter in that particular case, as well as reasonable reliance. And that's the exact same set of circumstances that you have in this case, except for you have the situation where uh, not only has there been an utter failure to prove reasonable reliance, looking at the transcript, Mr. Obaka describes himself to the trial court as a businessman. He describes himself as settling three lawsuits. This is not an individual that entered into this trans, uh, transaction without understanding the terms of the contract that he was signing on to. He is a sophisticated businessman. Um, you also have the existence of the as-is clause in the agreement as well. Uh, uh, let me interrupt you, but even uh, we can quibble over the, the, uh, uh, the uh, effect of the as-is clause. The other points you made were really evidentiary to, uh, and, and relate to the fraud claim itself, uh, the essential elements of fraud, the scienter, the reliance, and the things that you're talking about. But please continue. Sure. Uh, so there was also one of the misrepresentations allegedly made by Mr. Shaw to Mr. Obaka was that the gas station was um, selling on average 160,000 gallons a month. And according to Mr. Obaka, this was an inflated figure. Now, there's case law that states that if you could determine the true state of facts by making your own reasonable investigation, you can't prove reasonable reliance. In other words, you can't stick your head in the sand. Um, and if that is true, that you couldn't find the true state of affairs upon your own reasonable investigation, you have to plead that in the complaint. You have to either plead that you were denied the opportunity to do your own investigation or that you couldn't have discovered the true state of facts if you had made the investigation. None of that is present here. 
none of that. For all of those reasons, the alleged misrepresentations fail as a matter of law, not only because the particular pleading requirements were not met, but also because there was no proof as to any of the misrepresentations. Counsel, you're well within your rebuttal time. I can see that. Um, I would like to just conclude that we largely stand on the brief in terms of um, the allegations set forth by um, Judge Jackson in his opinion where he concludes that we engaged in gamesmanship and unprofessionalism. Um, the local rules are cited in our brief and our position is that on many of the points made by uh, Judge Jackson, a clear reading of the rules indicates that we complied with them all. Thank you. Thank you, Counselor. We'll hear from the FLA. May it please the court, uh, Chief Justice Newby, Associate Justices of the Supreme Court of North Carolina. I'm David Farrell, the law firm of Major Nexon, formerly Nexon Pruitt here in Raleigh, here representing uh, the Appalee uh, Defendants Boom Brands LLC and Victor Ibaka. Uh, we're here to respectfully request that you affirm the Court of Appeals decision to vacate uh, Judge Karen Eddie Williams' uh, order uh, in the trial court uh, granting summary judgment and to remand the case to the trial court for further proceedings. Um, I want to pick up where we spent a lot of the time uh, in the original uh, appellant's case to talk about the Rule 43E issue. Uh, certainly believe uh, that Judge Dillon is correct. Uh, that was uh, a per se error of law committed by uh, the trial court. Uh, he cites the case. I believe that's clear. Uh, if, the, if a review of the transcript uh, shows that the judge thought she could not hear oral testimony, uh, the rule is clear that she could have received it, she could have exercised her discretion, but she clearly states, as Justice Earls read the quote from the transcript, that she did not believe she could hear it. Um, and so we believe that, that the record is clear on that. Um, and again, Justice Earls read the quotes uh, directly from the transcript. Uh, it's also important to note, I think, Chief Justice Newby, you ask, what's the law that says that the oral testimony has to only be supplemental or a link? And the answer is that there is no Supreme Court case saying that the rule is limited that way. Certainly the plain language of the rule is not limited to a direct link or supplementation. Uh, certainly that is part of what the trial judge, if they were exercising their discretion, could consider. But that is not, uh, I could not find it in any Supreme Court case. Um, the Kessing case, which was cited uh, by the appellant, and it's a 1971 case, does not, in my read, say that the oral testimony is only in a supplementary fashion. Uh, it just plainly says oral testimony may also be received by reason of Rule 43E at a summary judgment hearing. Uh, the Supreme Court case of Singleton v. Stewart, also cited uh, by the appellant, it's a 1972 case, also says in its description of what can be considered when a motion comes on for hearing 
the Supreme Court says the court may consider pleadings, affidavits, depositions, answers, interrogatories, admissions, oral testimony, and documentary evidence, and then the court may consider facts that are also subject to judicial notice. So Singleton, again, cites Rule 43E's application to a summary judgment hearing without any restriction. And then finally, um, the Probst construction case, uh, 1982, it's a court appeals opinion that says basically the, uh, the defendant had crossed the signed error that the trial court erred and allow oral testimony to be introduced in the record at a summary judgment hearing. Here, the court of appeals said, while this court has expressed some concern about the overzealous use of oral testimony in a hearing in a summary judgment motion, the permissibility of such testimony was noted in the Kessing case, and therefore, on the basis of Rule 43E, it's admissible, we find no error. And the Supreme Court uh, affirmed and adopted that court's opinion. And so that Probst case was the last case I could find where the Supreme Court directly dealt with the oral testimony at a summary judgment hearing. What and about no the fact that this was a virtual hearing? Uh, you know, we've moved into this realm. Uh, I don't think that anybody is trying cases virtually. At least I haven't heard that. Uh, are there limitations that judges reasonably can place on uh, uh, the types of testimony or the types of evidence be received when the hearing is virtual? 100% agree that they can. Um, and so in this case, if the judge had recognized that she had the legal authority to hear the testimony, but then decided in her discretion based on the facts and the circumstances of the case to make some limitation or focus on what has been pointed out that there was not, no affidavits filed and things of that sort. I'll get to the timing of the, the timeline here and, and, and certainly think that in the facts of this case that, that the uh, pro se uh, party was not given uh, time to, to file affidavits in re response to the, these motions. But certainly if the judge had gotten over the, the error of law that she made and not thinking she had the discretion, she could have taken into account those things. I mean, this hearing occurred at a time when the courts were still, you know, kind of adjusting and coming out of some of the COVID restrictions and, and the, the virtual hearing nature of things. Uh, you know, a lot of counties have gotten back to the in-person. So certainly recognize that there could have been some discretion employed on whether to allow it, how much, how little, and things of that sort. But that just didn't happen here because she kind of started out with an error of law and then uh, didn't allow uh, anything after that as far as weighing in on her decisions. And so, again, I think the, the case law does not uh, put the restrictions on the trial judge that the appellant uh, argued to you earlier. And the, can the Chantos case, again, doesn't really impact this either. That was a, apparently a party held and tried to introduce an affidavit at the hearing on in summary judgment and tried to use 43E as the basis for withholding an affidavit by saying, well, if we can have oral testimony, then I should be able to bring my affidavit forward at hearing. And the court said, no, this is a discretionary rule for the judge to apply and did not allow that affidavit. So that was the nature of that uh, ruling. Again, we, um, I, I thought that I 
understood opposing counsel to say that even if the trial court incorrectly believe that it didn't have the discretion to allow testimony at the summary judgment hearing that the error was not prejudicial. What's your response to that? Is prejudice part of what we should look at there? Well, I mean, certainly given that the judge made an error of law, you know, that seems by the court to be subject to remand. But the prejudice, I believe, is clear in that what we have here is a pro se party that was served with an affidavit two business days before a hearing where the affidavit was being used to support the summary judgment ruling. And so our rules of civil procedure say that Rule 6 applies to Rule 56 and that when you, if you're going to base your summary judgment ruling on an affidavit, that affidavit is served with the motion. And that didn't happen here. And so, I mean, that's part of kind of the overall concern that we have with how Judge Eddie Williams handled the hearing. You know, I'll get at the end to some of the rule violations that should have led to a brief continuance which was requested so that the pro se party could adequately try to respond to the motion as well as clear up these discovery issues that the judge seemed to focus on in denying his motion to continue. But Judge Dillon properly noted that what was pled in the counterclaim not only could have been a defense to the lawsuit, the complaint claims, but also certainly the counterclaim supported a direct relief against the plaintiff. So the fact is, under the facts of this case, the pro se party never got a chance to adequately respond to the sworn testimony that was given to him two business days before the hearing. And so we think that that is the prejudice that Judge Dillon recognized and that we believe is there. And he certainly forecast that. And I believe there was a question earlier about the fact that that certainly could have been proven. There's no dispute that there was no affidavit or evidence put forward at the time of the summary judgment hearing. We're not here disputing that, but we believe it could have been, which is the prejudice that occurs. So you're probably going to touch on this in your argument, but when there is tension between the local rules and what the local rules provide and the rules of procedure, is it a safe harbor to comply with the local rule? Well, I mean, I certainly believe that our rules of civil procedure should have governed in this case. I mean, we've got a situation where we have a pro se party. I mean, again, the facts and the timeline are really not in dispute that this motion was ultimately improperly served on a former counsel and then ultimately served on the pro se party roughly two weeks before summary judgment hearing. The affidavit was used to support the motion. It was not served with the motion. In fact, it didn't even exist until May 9th. I think it was verified on May 19th and served on May 20th, a mere two business days before the hearing. And so I know Judge Jackson spent a lot of time noting that the local rule requires, you know, essentially a 48-hour business rule type service for 
affidavits, and there was no evidence in the record that that was even complied with because the, the documents in the record from the appellant do not note the time of service. So, you know, it could have come in prior to that 11.30 a.m. time slot on the 20th, could have been served at 5 p.m. We don't know. It's not in the record. Um, you know, my firm didn't get involved until the Court of Appeals of this case, so I, don't, I wasn't involved at the trial court level. In fact, I wasn't involved at the Court of Appeals level. I'm just involved at this level. Um, but I think the, the record shows that there are some questions about service, uh, and we certainly know that they didn't comply with the Rule 56 and Rule 6 dynamic of, of affidavits being served. And so, you know, when you have these rule issues, I'll just digress for a moment. I mean, particularly when you've got a pro se party, and this is not a, for the purpose of this case, not a career pro se plaintiff. I mean, this part, this uh, gentleman and his company had a lawyer, and it looks like from some of the correspondence in the record that the lawyer had some serious family health issues in December, then withdrew, moved to withdraw, and it was with consent. Uh, and that occurred roughly in February. And, you know, if there, there certainly appears to be outstanding discovery issues, but the record also shows that the, the plaintiff did not inquire for over five months about those discovery issues. The plaintiff, once the, the lawyer withdrew, uh, three and a half months went by before the first correspondence to the pro se party saying there's outstanding discovery issues. And if you've seen the transcript, you know that a lot of the hearing was spent with this pro se party trying to respond to the judge's questions about these discovery issues. And there was no evidence that in the record that he had been provided notice before May 14th that there were outstanding discovery issues. And so, I mean, if, if you're the trial judge, I think when the pro se party raises notice and raises questions about discovery and says, I thought I turned that stuff over to my former lawyer, at that point you would hope that the trial judge would take a step back and really start looking at the record and look at the timeline. I mean, we've got a pro se party. At that point, you know, and, and certainly in the course of the case, there's no evidence that this pro se party was using his pro se status to obstruct anything. Uh, and, and let me yeah. follow that line of questioning. Yeah. Uh, uh, Justice Banner here. Um, your uh, friend on the other side mentions that, uh, or makes the argument that uh, that the uh, uh, agreement or the uh, the yes the agreement for the withdrawal had the condition that there would not be undue delay or something to that effect. Um, but your client, while had not received these um, correspondences from the other side, also does not appear to have procured a lawyer during a period of almost six months. Uh, how do you answer that in the context of the agreement or the, yes, the agreement to uh, allow the withdrawal? Yes, uh, great question. Essentially, the way I read the consent, it basically says I'm agreeing to allow my lawyer to consent, and I recognize that I'm not going to use his withdrawal to uh, delay the trial or any other dates, I think is the way it's worded. But it's important to note two things here. Number one, there was no attempt to delay the trial date. Here. Um, in fact, that's one of the concerns we've got, a short continuance to allow him to either provide affidavits in response to an untimely affidavit or to clear up the discovery issue if he did, in fact, have provided documents to his former lawyer that were not turned over before the withdrawal. 
all could have been addressed with a short continuance that would not have moved the trial date. So there's nothing about anything in the record or any actions that would have conf you know, conflicted with that statement where he agreed not to move to continue the trial date because he had not moved to continue the trial date. But, but my understanding is, uh, uh, confirm my, understand, my understanding that he did not, during that time, procure a lawyer until this all started, uh, just colloquially started up again. Well, I, I'll say this. Certainly, uh, there is no evidence in the record that uh, he procured a lawyer before the hearing. What he says at the hearing is that he's been in discussions and is about to finalize a relationship with a local Charlotte attorney. I think the last name was Zamora. And he, that was part, in addition to his request for a short continuance to deal with responding to the motion and to deal with what it clear up discovery, he also mentioned that he was trying to hire a lawyer. Um, I think it's also important to note, though, that the trial court did not use his lack of hiring a lawyer for three and a half months. They didn't make any findings on that. They didn't use it as a reason to deny anything. So I can't, there's nothing in the record to say what he did for three months, whether he tried to find lawyers and, you know, couldn't, or whether, you know, he, he just didn't do anything for three and a half months. I don't know. But the record is, is void of that information, and the judge did not use that to base any of her rulings on based on what that, what's in the transcript or the order. Thank you. Yeah. So kind of bringing us back to, we, we've talked about Rule 43. We believe Judge Dillon is correct on that point and that that alone is grounds to remand the case to the trial court. But also, uh, he, he properly holds that it was proper to vacate the summary judgment order as it relates to its finding summary judgment on the counterclaim and again, this is, uh, we believe, correct. There, the, there was no motion filed for summary judgment as to the counterclaim. Uh, what it appears that the, the, the appellant is relying on and that the court ended up relying on is when the brief was filed two days, two business days before the hearing, for the first time it's mentioned that that they're moving not only for summary judgment on the complaint, but also the counterclaim. So two business days before the hearing, and this was a, just a really curious exchange where the judge, Eddie Williams, appears to acknowledge that there was only one summary judgment notice and acknowledge that the counterclaim had not been properly noticed and then just kind of blows right by it and just ignores the service issues, the notice issues, the fact that we're dealing with a pro se party. I mean, in most cases, I would hope that a trial judge would take a step back and say, you know, when we've got a pro se party, we're going to look hard at these timing issues and notice issues. But here, that didn't happen. Um, there is no evidence that, that the, the notice was waived or that the hearing was consented to by uh, Mr. Abaca by appearing. In fact, he asked for a short continuance to try to address these issues, try to defend himself, and also to clear up the discovery issues. So and I, one thing that I wonder about with Judge Dillon's reasoning there, so I know there's the cases that say if you move for summary judgment, you go in on an issue, you can end up, the trial court can end up entering summary judgment the other way, even if no one asked for that, which makes sense because the parties have gone in and forecast all their evidence on that claim or that issue, whatever it is. 
So there's really nothing else out there that's not before the trial court. And if the court looks at it and says, you're right, there's no genuine issue of material fact, but it goes the other way, um, you know, you could certainly see how that would be permissible. But what's different here, I think, is what Judge Dillon is getting at, is that there could be evidence. I mean, in this case, there was no evidence at all um, from your client. But in, imagine just a, a normal case where you've moved for summary judgment on claims in the complaint. There are also counterclaims. The evidence could be completely different. The parties could come before the court with their forecast of the evidence on the principal claim from the complaint. And it would be odd for the court to address the counterclaim because that evidence could be entirely different and something neither party gave to the court. So it may look like there's no fact disputes when there are. So how would you, how would a court manage that? How would you 